0: This podcast is for general, educational, and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. There is a little bit of this frenetic race right now, this nervous energy to get in while multiples are high and to make sure you get out again, at least in part, while multiples are still high. And and we do know if the, Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve Chair, says he's two, three years away from raising rates. I think most people believe there will be some tempering in the value of the equity markets once those rates are raised. And so there's for this frenetic race to put money to work now to at least have some chance to get some of it out within three years, within the time that multiples start to go in the other direction.
1: This is Gastro Broadcast presented by Gastrologics, the only GI specific group purchasing organization in the United States. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Scott Becker. If you're a gastroenterologist, he probably doesn't need an introduction. Scott is an expert in all things related to the business of gastroenterology. He's a sought after healthcare attorney and a partner at McGuire Woods. Scott is a publisher of Becker's Healthcare, a leading source of business information for hospital leaders and owners and operators of ambulatory surgery centers. He's a preferred speaker at live conferences and one of my favorite podcast hosts. Welcome to Gastro Broadcast, Scott.
0: Dr. Weinstein, Michael, thank you so much for having me and what a pleasure to get to visit with you.
1: Uh, I really do appreciate this. Um, so. Uh, you know, I know about your career a little bit. You you, uh, you went to Harvard Law School. You graduated in 1989. And uh, why healthcare law? What was the uh, attraction?
0: Sure. So it was really a number of different things. E- early on in my career, there was this mix of working on a few different healthcare projects, healthcare business projects that were sort of very interesting to me there was this evolution of wanting to be in an area of law that was less just transactions or litigation, but more an area of law, an area of business, and really understand the industry, the vertical, the whole area. And healthcare was one of the few places where a lawyer could do that. There was financial services, there was healthcare, There's just a handful of areas where you could really build a practice in an industry versus becoming a legal expert in something and then applying it to multiple different industries and to me it was far more interesting to be embedded in an industry and really learn what was going on healthcare ended up being sort of the natural choice for that it was an easy choice it was you know 20 percent of the economy so I always felt like there was always going to be plenty of opportunities and choices it was flexible it was interesting we all touch it i had touched some projects in it But it wasn't some great Florence Nightingale design where I was trying to do great things for the world or something like that. It was more just like I wanted to be embedded in an area and in a world. This is the one I ended up choosing for a variety of reasons. And it's been a magnificent opportunity. I mean, to be able to straddle two different careers in healthcare, both as a publisher, media company, Becker's Healthcare, plus a lawyer. And it's just been great fun. I mean, fascinating.
1: Well, I think it's fascinating as well. Um, you probably don't recall, but I recall meeting you on a plane ride to Chicago, probably back in the 1990s. I was a young physician, you were a young attorney, by the way, you did give me your card. Uh, and you were already an expert in ambulatory surgery centers, which we were very interested in as well. Was gastroenterology your first love? Was that your first area of expertise?
0: Well, I I would say that the the first area was really surgery centers and and gastroenterologists, ophthalmologists were such a huge part of that. So gastroenterologists, ophthalmologists, orthopedists, those were the three areas. And of those, I ended up, for a variety of reasons, spending just a huge amount of time with gastroenterology, with endoscopy, ended up early, early on in my career doing a ton of work with a variety of different firms, multi-specialty surgery centers, but then also back in the day... And it's a long time ago with physicians endoscopy, and, and at the time, CEO was a guy named Barry Tanner, who was just a wonderful, wonderful person and leader, and, and he brought me in further, and I got to know just a lot about the the colonoscopies, the endoscopy field, GI, and so forth, you know, and and still, you know, but just it, you know, now there's several magnificent companies like yours. But at the time, there were very few specializing in GI. And it was, it was really, so between that and touching a lot of different GI centers, and we had a family history of, you know, Winch syndrome, so it started doing colonoscopies at a very young age, you know, and, and, and now we've got genetic testing. So we know in the family who does have the gene, who does not have the gene. But we, we spent a lot of time just in the area as a patient and just as a business consultant lawyer. And it was really just fascinating. I mean, a lot of these time happened because we were in surgery centers and in surgery centers, there were three main specialties. GI was one of them. and just ended up having a chance. And I, and I loved, of course, the physicians, you know, you mentioned this earlier when we were talking offline, the physicians are very similar to myself. they were both physicians. They also were very much a business mind as well. They, they were trying to do great medicine and do great business. And to me, it was a very natural relationship with professionals that were like myself trying to be a lawyer but also be in business too you know the, the business of law and the business of ultimately the business of publishing too so it was very it was very easy affinity i mean just a very very similarly built doctors that are also sort of business oriented open-minded thinking about business very similar to myself as a, as a professional at the Harvard Law School but always thinking about business too not just my profession so it was very it was a very easy affinity
1: well, I, I uh, fascinating um, and uh, interesting that we know the same people because Barry Tanner was certainly one of my uh, favorite people that I came across back in the in the early days of physicians endoscopy as well. So uh, b- back then, you started publishing a newsletter uh, uh, about ASCs. Probably, I think ASCs was your first newsletter. What prompted you to publish a newsletter?
0: sure so so things at some point got turned upside down but back in the day and this goes back now 28 29 years ago was our first surgery center conference and our first surgery center newsletter and the first newsletter was literally a two to four page almost mimeographed sheet that i wrote myself and it was um and it was i was trying to build a name and a brand as a healthcare lawyer in the surgery center area and and was you know we started doing some small conferences and some small newsletters and it was really You know, it was just an advanced hobby, but to help market and brand myself as a as a leading healthcare lawyer in the surgery center area. Now, of course, 30 years later, the media company dwarfs the legal world in that it's a, you know, it's a relatively large, not huge, but a large business business media company in surgery centers, hospitals and health systems, spine and ortho and then health IT but surgery centers was absolutely the start of it hundred percent. And it was, uh, you know, and, and really spent my first X numbers of years in media and in law, really building a practice around surgery centers and ultimately surgery center changed the two things.
1: Well, that's, uh, that's certainly where I came in contact with you back in the nineties. The um, as you say, you've d- been dealing with a lot of physicians over the years. And, uh, I can certainly uh, say that we are sometimes not great at taking advice. We're very independent thinkers. We're sort of trained that way in medical school. Do you have a particular approach when you're advising physicians?
0: I I think um, sort of there's, there's this knock on physicians. You know, an old physician's wife would always make the joke, well, he's a great doctor. And, and the concept being he's a great doctor, and it, it was her way of saying he's not a great you know, business person. But but I, I think that knock is way, way overrated. I mean, you see today so many of the great CEOs of health systems are doctors. So many of the great CEOs of really significant rolled-up practice efforts are physicians. And it, it, it's really an issue of – i find it to be an untrue knock physicians are very very bright but by and large it's almost it's still almost impossible crazy to get into medical school so it requires great brights and then it's a matter of those physicians being open-minded enough to think and open their minds to business as well and 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 many 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 are quite good at business as well some are good or not good at risk tolerance Understanding the risk tolerance, you know, whenever the market crashes, we get a new lesson in risk tolerance. Some are willing to get sold by people and, and have a deal frenzy nature and need to touch every deal they see. Uh, but I think by and large, physicians are, you know, very, very bright. And that naturally applies over time to business too, as long as they choose to think about it, you know, and, and, and choose to sort of, you know, think about it. You know, I, I don't, um, to me, the whole goal of being a lawyer and an advisor is to constantly try as much as possible to simplify things for people, to simplify choices, to try and understand, these are a few options. For example, if you're selling uh, to have another group align with you, you, you need to understand what is that group looking for? Are they looking for capital cash out? Are they looking for an alignment partner to help them align and grow? Uh, are they just looking for security at this point or are they trying to avoid a disaster, you know, because their practice is going in the wrong direction. But there's typically you try trying to simplify w- what are the three or four things people are really looking for. And I think that's how I look at advising physicians, but I, I don't like, I don't like buy the knock on physicians about business and physicians. Because I've worked with so many that are such gifted entrepreneurs and such gifted people, you know, and, and, and yes, if they're totally busy just doing their own professional career, and of course, they're not going to be brilliant at everything else because they're doing magnificent in their professional career. But but I don't I, I really – I mean, you do get into the ego-driven thing, not just amongst physicians, of all Americans, where over by the house, over by the car, over by this, over to that. But that's not – that's for certain not unique to physicians. I mean, that's, that's everybody in our country.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. And, and uh, obviously, it's – uh, uh it is trying to simplify. I absolutely agree with you. If you lay it out, um, we physicians in general are very bright, but um, you know you have to have the background that somebody like you has, um, and hopefully listen. Um, I've heard you speak at many meetings. Uh, I always learn something. Uh, I think the part that I enjoy the most about hearing you talk is your blunt honesty. You you're not sugarcoating. You are you you have a view on many things, and you're very honest about it. You've advised uh, physicians. You've advised private equity companies on both sides of all of this recapitalization transaction business. All of these deals. I just read that the number of deals in the second quarter of 2021 was 10 times. The number of deals in 2020 in the same quarter—an uh, explosion. Um, any any ideas about what is driving this surge of investment interest? In- uh,
0: in- it's, in- it's, sure. About? No, it's a, it's it's a great question, and there's really multiple things driving it but i'll sort of point to three or four one private equity funds have just a record amount of capital that they're sitting on to put to work and and you know two three trillion dollars are sitting on to put to work which is a you know astronomical numbers two the private equity funds don't earn their management fee nor do they have a chance to get out on the other side of the deal until they put that money to work so the typical private equity fund we'll talk about that It's a fee structure of 2% of assets under management, and then 20% of the carried interest, the the upside of the deal. And and so there's this law of big numbers that drives so much of this, but we'll talk about that in a second. But the 2% that they get, they don't get unless those assets are under management, which means put to work. So, So the private equity funds are very incentive institutionally to get that money to work. Third is there's this frenetic race going on. You know, all of us. You're of my vintage, so we all understand that we've lived through the you know, Greenspan bubble years. You know, you know, don't take the the champagne away type of thing. We all know we're living in somewhat of a bubble right now. It's been coined now, Tina. There is no alternative to equities, and the and the concept being that interest rates on Treasuries are so low, down at 1.2% today on a 10-year, but they're almost zero. You know, you can't put money in a bank safely if you're a saver and investor. There's no alternative but to put money into equities. And and so the the private equity funds realize this and there's sort of this frenetic race to can we do deals now and multiples are at historic highs and hopefully they'll stay at historic highs for a few more years, but nobody knows when that will change. And so there's two ways for a private equity fund to grow the value of a business one is multiples go up which they just go up and they can go up a little bit just by the size of of deal that they're investing in you can take a 20 million dollar platform and make it a hundred million dollar platform maybe you move from a 10 to 11 or 12 whatever the number is but then you could also go up by the you know the value of the business more profits makes the business more profitable more EBITDA there is a little bit of this frenetic race right now this nervous energy to get in while multiples are high and to make sure you get out again at least in part while multiples are still high and and we do know if the Jerome Powell the Federal Reserve Chair says he's two three years away from raising rates I think most people believe there will be some tempering in the value of the equity markets once those rates are raised and so there's for this frenetic race to put money to work now at least have some chance to get some of it out within three years, within the time that multiples start to go in the other direction. You know, there's also this explosion in, of course, health IT and other kinds of technology that's going to work in healthcare. But there's, you know, there's, there's some very simple math at, at play. There's a huge amount of money put to, put to work. The institutions don't get even the management fee on that money unless it's put to work. The institutions live under the law of big numbers. So if you have a $100 million fund, it turns into $300 million, they get 20% of that if you have a $2 billion fund, or if you're Blackstone and you have 300 billion under management, it's turning that into X amount more billions. And then the private equity fund is getting 20% of that. So there's this huge incentive to get in and be it's- positioned to get out within X amount of years.
1: So uh, a lot of math, a lot of investment knowledge needed to understand that. I believe me, a little bit over my head. I, um, which is why we hire people like you to help us. Um, I've heard, you know, in our group, we sort of, uh, uh, looked at strategy, right? Where do we, where did we want to be in 2030? Um, a longer term outlook in strategy, as opposed to what you just were talking about, which is that two or three year get in, get out kind of thing. You, in the private equity investment in healthcare and thinking about physician practices, um, your, any opinion about whether you think this is uh, good for patients, good for physicians? Is it just about the finances?
0: No, it, it, it can't be about a lot more than the finances. And, and again, you know I'll take a company, I, I won't take a specific company, but you know a private equity fund will typically in one to five years, sell their interest in the company to another private equity fund. So, so the physician component of it, the core company stays in place. It may just have different majority owners or different private equity owners. So it's not as though you're changing it. From a, from a physician standpoint, a lot of it depends on what the physician and the group is trying to accomplish. You know, in, in you have physicians and groups that have micro and clear needs. Like we've got people close to retirement. This provides a method to get retirement funding for some of them. You have bigger needs, you you have physician leaders that have a vision. We don't wanna be a small independent practice that's subject to the vagaries of our market. We wanna be a much larger, stronger practice. And and as, as you and I have seen, many of the most successful GI groups, once you get passed to some very highly efficient and profitable three to four person groups, the most successful groups are often these large single specialty groups. But they have a lot of resources to bring to beer a lot of efficiencies and, and really could look at strategies in a bigger way they could take risks on i.t they could take risks on recruiting they can do a lot of things that small groups can't do so if somebody's trying to build a bigger platform there's a lot of incentive to have a partner in it because if you don't have a partner in it you've got to self-fund it all and, and that's a very expensive undertaking and it leads people to a spot where from their own risk profile You and your handful of colleagues can't really do that, but you can't do it with a private equity partner. So so a private equity partner doesn't have to be good nor bad. It can't be a means to an end and it depends what that end is you want. I mean, there's certainly many groups founded by people of my vintage and I'm in my close to late fifties now are, you know, at this point, their biggest challenge is what does that pipeline look for recruiting new physicians? And and what's the cost of bringing in those, those new physicians? And at some point, that's a very real risk and real issue to groups. And so if you build a bigger group, you become more centralized in recruiting. You become better at recruiting. You, may, you have the capital to take chances on recruiting. And you're competing against hospitals and health systems, other private equity-funded platforms to recruit great gastroenterologists. There, there, there's lots of reasons why people would want to be a larger single specialty platform, whether with or without a PE PA partner. And a PE PA partner is just part of that.
1: Right. Oh, f- fascinating. I, it has been an internal debate in our group for, for quite a while. I think we're on the right path right now. I think a lot of the listeners are trying to figure out their futures at this point, And that is really great information. Um,
0: uh, and we don't view it as private equity as good nor bad. It's totally as a physician, as a group, understanding what it means to your group.
1: I agree. I mean, for us, you know, it was uh, the partnership that we did was uh, part of the long-term strategy. And I think for uh, GI groups, it's their strategy and where they want to be versus where their partner, their their private equity partner wants to be in two years, three years, or four years. And do the goals of both partner practice and partner equity investor, are those the same goals at least over that period of time, right?
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. Are are they at least relatively consistent? You have different kinds of private equity funds. Some are just financial engineers. Some are pleasure to do business with. Some are brutal to do business business with. Some want to make big, big changes to whatever you're doing. Others want to let you be and generally grow with you almost as a silent partner as long as things are going okay. You know, and, and it's a whole... It's a whole mix of private equity funds and and not bad nor good. It's just a whole mix of different attitudes yeah, to how they do business.
1: Yeah, different different specialists, I guess you would say, different specialists. So it's been a, um, you know, it's been obviously a lot of turmoil in the last year, 18 months. Can you tell, thinking about the last 12, 18 months, can you tell me one thing that you think you've changed your mind about during the past year? What have you?
0: you know, I'm not sure I've got a great answer to that question. I just saw it, Dr. Weinstein. I'm not sure. um, there's, you know, I, I find myself constantly as an evolving person, like we all are. And it's constantly trying to categorize how we approach life and what we do to to keep focused and sane and all those things. And so is there is there something that I've um, that have changed my mind on? Not sure there's thing I specifically changed my mind on. I do think it's a constant evolution of, you know, as we, you know, as we um get out of our twenties and thirties, it is it is more effort and time to spend time on physical and mental well-being. You know, I had a uh you know, a fascinating podcast yesterday with the chief of research at um, Cleveland Clinic. And, and the thing I found fascinating about it, she is explaining, here's the four big areas of research for Cleveland Clinic. And two of them made immediate sense. It's cancer and cardiology, which two, of course, are the two biggest killers of American, so easily makes sense as the two biggest. And third and fourth was the brain and inflammation. And, and this inflammation was a fascinating topic. How does that get to the top four of research at Cleveland Clinic. And so you're a physician and gastroenterologist by, by training. So many of the people on the, that are listening will say, of course it makes it there because every, inflammation touches everything. But if you're a lay person, not a doctor, of course, I've got all the middleweight age sports injury, injuries from being a mediocre athlete. And you've got the tennis elbow, you've got the knee that aches, all those kinds of things. You get more and more of the concept that if things, if you keep them from being inflamed, If you're better on the preventive side and obviously this is the whole world of colonoscopies if you're better on the preventive side we avoid all kinds of trouble i i guess if i think about anything that there are multiple different things that i'm constantly learning and educating myself on and that that was just eye-opening to me the thought that inflammation rises top four things at cleveland clinic but it makes up on its sense when you think about it you know when, when i'll tell you the other thing i've changed my mind on which is more complicated is this concept of should everybody get vaccinated. And you've got this fascinating discussion right now going on, where if you're a young person, you went to college or a college, you saw everybody get COVID and everybody be okay. Largely, largely, at least at your age level. At your age level, it doesn't mean at our age level that they were okay, but at that age level, they were okay. At the same time, they see this risk benefit of, well, if you get the shot, you know, hundred people out of a billion got G.M. bar disease or how you pronounce it, and a few people got blood clots. So for me, myself as a 20 year old, my risk benefit is eh, I might not get vaccinated. And and so the, the issue is, yes, I can respect that choice, but we know the reality is if more people don't get vaccinated, there's more room for everything to mutate. And and for the rest of us, even those that get vaccinated, than if with horrible oral strains of COVID. So so my concept has probably moved one bit away. Yes, absolutely, we have to encourage everybody to get vaccinated. But it's probably moving one bit away from a total libertarian perspective that everybody should make their own choice. Because if you make your own choice and you're somebody in these very healthy categories, your choice may very well be I'm not getting vaccinated. But we all know that we're one sort of world. And if we leave the rest of the world unvaccinated, we've got sort of a disaster for all of us looming because the virus will keep on spreading and mutating and dividing. So I've sort of moved from like this America first concept. We all need to get ourselves vaccinated. Then the rest of the world's like, oh, my God, we really need the whole world vaccinated to really reduce the spread of this and mutations of it. It, It's sort of another evolving viewpoint of mine. I can understand the individual risk benefit analysis for a young person, but at the end of the day, I sort of move towards, we really do need to push everybody to get vaccinated a little bit less libertarianism in the nicest way possible.
1: I really appreciate the comments you made about well-being and focusing a little bit on yourself and your own health. Um, We've seen tremendous burnout Right. I'm sure in law, a lot of burnout amongst lawyers and stuff. And, and the, I, th- I think I agree with you. One of the things I've probably changed my mind about is the importance of taking care of yourself and your well-being and your health and uh, things like that, rather than just day after day of gr- the grind um, and trying to simplify your life maybe a little bit for the benefit of not only yourself, because if you're benefiting yourself, you're a better person for your family. You're a better person for everybody else. So what you said about recognizing the importance of your own health—that was that's uh, that's very important. That's very fascinating. That you know, we I think a lot of us have done that over the last year or two.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, we preach it to the children. Just it's like you, yes, you have to do great in your career, but yes, you always have to sort of physically and mentally take care of yourself. It's just so important for the long run. And and. The burnout situation is endemic throughout America, and obviously in healthcare, which has had a brutal year in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of healthcare providers taking the brunt of risk with COVID-19, but also just generally tremendous amount of burnout.
1: I really appreciate your time today, Scott. You are a fascinating, uh, to use a word that you use a lot, a fascinating person in uh, medicine, in healthcare, in law, in legal, in regulation. I really enjoy talking to you. I hope you'll come back maybe and uh, do this again sometime in the future. I promise to meet you on one of your podcasts in the future as well. Uh, Thank you for joining us on Gastro Broadcast.
0: Dr. Weinstein, just a great privilege. I could talk to you all day. So thank you very, very much for having me. Thank you, sir.
1: Uh, Thanks. Thanks, Scott.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.